With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. What were some of the conversations maybe you had with uh, the main man, Steve Jobs? And so there's one memorable meeting where we had the vice president of, of IT for Standard Oil of Indiana. They were all dressed in three-piece suits, and this guy was very reserved. He obviously was hugely skeptical about personal computers in general, let alone about Apple. And the guy, you know, looks at it and doesn't seem very impressed by it. But Jobs was supposed to be at the meeting, and he hadn't come yet. And so he shows up late, as he normally did. And this guy sort of looks at him, and Steve's, this a quote, Steve's first words out of his mouth were, so, what'd you think of our shit? And this guy just shut down completely. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and that was Andy Paul detailing one of the major turning points of his sales career. As a recent Stanford graduate, unsure of what to do or where to go next, Andy found himself waist-deep in the relentless world of tech sales. Throughout his journey, Andy faced a young Steve Jobs, plunged into various new startups, and actively sought out advice from those he sold to. Eventually, with a take-of-the-leap attitude and an ever-expanding product knowledge, Andy sold half a billion dollars worth of product, from computers to complex communication systems. With his own podcast and two best-selling books, he's now a leading figure in the tech sales industry. But first, let's rewind and begin with the smell of rich soil and fresh air. Andy's story is one that starts far away from the bustle of Silicon Valley. It starts in the sweeping farmlands of Madison, Wisconsin. Well, I was born in Madison, uh, we actually had a backyard, but directly beyond our backyard was a cornfield. Uh, our next door neighbors or two, do- two doors down was still a cornfield. If the wind blew the right right way, you'd smell the cattle and so on. So yeah, we lived within a block of a active farm. It was fenced in and surrounded by houses, but still nonetheless. Yeah, I wanted to, to work a little bit during school. And so this was my junior year of high school. So my first day on the job, I I was told to show up at eight o'clock. There's a nine o'clock store opening. And the manager said during that hour that he was going to train me to become the best women's shoe salesperson in the world. But what happened that was really interesting, my first day is that sort of from the time I showed up at 8 a.m. until 9 a.m., the skies opened up and this huge snowstorm showed up. As like I say, it's sort of like a bat signal to every woman that lived within the 30-mile radius of the store is come get your new winter boots. So my first day, I was really thrown into the deep end of the selling pool with minimal training, waiting on women that primarily were there to buy boots. And the mortifying part was for, you know, 16-year-old kid was... Yeah, having to sort of zip up these boots as women are trying them on and oftentimes sort of having to 
push their calves in while I zipped up. All sorts of boundaries being crossed for me in terms of you know, touching strange women and, and feeling awkward about helping them get into these boots that in some cases they were just frankly too big for. And so I would generally take someone around this display area and they would choose a couple styles they liked. And I said, well, why don't you sit down, we'll measure your feet. And it sounds so stereotypical, excuse me, but yeah, I'd measure for an eight and let's say bring it in a seven. And so one lesson I learned my first day was that it really wasn't about what I thought was right. It was about what the customer thought was right. I sort of got over pretty quickly this idea that I was doing a bad job by not forcing them to buy with the size that they measured at, but actually give them what they wanted. The time Andy spent at JCPenney prefigured a lifelong dedication to gaining an in-depth understanding of how to sell, focusing on what the customer wants and how to serve them effectively. We all remember our first job, the immense satisfaction felt when depositing that first paycheck or those long exhales after a full day shift. It's both liberating and daunting and holds a trove of opportunities to learn. The dedication to service, quality, and the customer continued to resonate with Andy throughout the stability found in his high school years, even as the ground beneath his feet was preparing to shift into something completely unrecognizable. And so 30 days before the start of my senior year, and so I was, you know, I don't want to say a big man on campus, but sort of, yeah, I had all my friends. I was doing great in sports. I was one of the top runners on the cross-country team. And my dad shows up, comes home from work and says, uh, hey, I've got some news. We have to be in Tokyo in 30 days. I'm being promoted and transferred. Well, I said, gosh, sounds like fun for you. I'm, I'm staying. <laughs> And that was not on the table at all with my parents. It's like, no. Yeah, I was kind of upset because, yeah, life was really looking good for senior year. I was crushed. I had no idea when I was going to come back, when I was going to see anybody. So this was 1972. And the big innovation just a couple years prior to that in aviation was 747s. So we flew a 747 from San Francisco to Tokyo, and that was pretty cool. And what was doubly cool is that we were flying first class. And at the time, the upstairs in the 747 was a lounge. And so I went up to the lounge. I was the only person there. It was just me. And I was just laying out on this couch, reading a book and looking out the window at the Pacific, completely unmindful of what I was going to find when I got there. The unexpected luxury of first class was a small distraction from the approaching foreign land that lay hours in the horizon. Peering out of his window at the soaring ocean view, he was leaving the hometown senior's dream. Being at the top of the pyramid, absorbing every carefree moment of time with friends and relishing the nostalgic best of your hometown. Moving is rarely easy, but moving an entire ocean away, just when you think you have it all sorted out, that can be a bitter pill to swallow. His dad's, and therefore his family's relocation to Japan, introduced an entirely new and unanticipated set of challenges for Andy to navigate. 
But as bitter as it may have been at the time, Andy accepted and embraced the change that lay ahead. He was on to the next chapter, and he was going to make it work. I went to the American school in Japan, and the first 90 days we were there, we lived in a hotel because we hadn't found a, a place to live yet. So the hotel was in central Tokyo. It was roughly a 90-minute train trip out to school. And most of the expats that went there lived in the center of town. And so there are other kids I'd see on the train. But yeah, my first day, I was, <laughs> I was following the route on two stops on the subway to get on one train and that had to get on a local train for two stops before I got off the school and then walk about half a mile to the school. I really don't remember how I managed to find my way out there the first the first couple of days. But yeah, the thing that was, that was sort of funny is there's a community of kids that you know, live overseas. And so there was a, like, a, I think a 20 year old drinking age, but you know, 18 year olds, we looked 20. And so we spent a lot of time in bars and it was just exploring things that you know, like pool halls and pachinko parlors. And yeah, it was a fabulous, fabulous experience. I mean, let's say in retrospect, it was so broadening in ways that, you know, I'm probably not even fully aware of still today. Andy was stepping into a Japan that was only 20 years out from the Allied occupation after World War II and only just gaining back control over Ryukyu Islands. This new culture provided Andy with numerous opportunities to explore a variety of ways to navigate the world, even as he came to absorb the richness of Tokyo's cultural landscape through the rumbling seats of the commuting train. The breadth of his horizons expanded as he met fascinating people from around the world. And this newfound freedom fostered his confidence, a tailwind pushing him toward yet another personal upheaval, his undergraduate years at Stanford. I mean, I had no, no sense of what I wanted to do with my life. I'd sort of thought, well, maybe law school or maybe international business. I was sort of enamored for a while with finance. Yeah, just, I was just sort of floating along in that regard. So when I, when I graduated, literally had no idea. Was that, like, concerning to you? Like, no, it was concerning to my parents. It, it wasn't concerning to me. And... Always felt that way throughout most of my life is, is, yeah, things will work out. For most, college bears the expectation that you should have your life figured out. It often seems as if everyone knows where they're going. But in truth, six out of every 10 college graduates don't feel ready to brave the real world. And he wasn't sure of his direction. But he had a strong faith that things would work out. And that's what separates him from the pack. His love of history and his propensity to live in the moment were his two biggest assets. The former kept him grounded, while the latter enabled him to live his life to the fullest. For Andy, college was truly a time of exploration, a time to develop one's values and relationships. I said, well, maybe I should spend some time at the Career Placement Center. And did, and... The jobs are mostly available. This is sort of like in October after I graduated in June were sales jobs. And so you applied to that company, Burroughs, which I think is now like Unisys. 
And you said it was one of your biggest failures. Can you explain what you meant by that? So, yeah, I was assigned to go interview for a job. They had an opening, a, a branch in Oakland. So drove up from Palo Alto and this guy, young guy, comes into the office and he said, who are you here to see? And I said, oh, Ray. And he goes, let me just word of advice. Yeah, he's a man, a few words. I said, oh, okay, thank you. Uh, so Ray comes in to the lobby and gets me and basically the only thing he says to me is, hi, I'm Ray. And I follow him into a conference room. And the job was to be trained to sell standalone computer systems. And one of the requirements was you need to know accounting. Well, I'd taken accounting, but I wasn't expecting the first words out of Ray's mouth were an accounting question. No pleasantry, just boom, right into an accounting question. What I do remember is that I froze. I was not expecting it. And all of my accounting knowledge jumped out of my head and disappeared. And so I sat there for what seemed like forever. And I finally said to Ray, I said, yeah, I, I know the answer to this question, but I just can't recall it. So if you let me, I'll go home when we're done here. I'll look up the answer. I'll call you tomorrow and we'll, you know, I'll give you the answer. We can talk about it. And with that, really without saying another word, Ray closes the notebook he had in front of him, stands up and leaves the room. About five minutes later, another guy comes into the room, a little bit older gentleman. And he says, hi, my name's Brian. He says, I'm the boss of this entire office. Ray works for me. Ray tells me he wants to hire you. And yeah, I was sort of surprised. But the the lesson was, it was, it was never, I wasn't raised to try to BS through my way through things. And then my instincts are is, yeah, if I don't know the answer, let me get back to you. As a Stanford history major, Andy may not have been the obvious choice for the job, but he earned their trust with his authenticity at the moment where he thought he had failed. Despite immediately being caught off guard in his interview, he trusted his instincts enough not to fabricate an answer. His honesty regarding his ignorance could easily have ruined his candidacy, but to this recruiter, it was a testament to his character and integrity, which are undervalued traits in the business world. This great first impression, however, only served to get him the job. Andy would have to work hard to fulfill the high expectations set for him. Sometime within the first month or so, they send you away for your first sales training class. And that was two weeks at a training center. This whole program, as these companies ran at the time, was meant to weed people out, right, at various stages. So you're sent home with an evaluation, which you have to seal and you have to give to, to your manager. I dutifully walked in on Monday morning after I've been gone two weeks, handed the envelope to Brian and he's, I get into his office and he sits back in his chair and puts his feet up on his desk and he's reading this piece of paper that clearly is the evaluation. And he says, so how do you think you did? Well, I thought it did okay. He goes, oh, well, yeah, they think we should fire you. <laughs> I'm like, what? And again, another, oh shit, what am I going to tell my parents moment? And I've you know, been on my first job for two weeks and they want to fire me. And he said, yeah, they think you're too analytical. And being roundly rejected, most cases, you start to think, hmm, is this for me? Any success was due largely to his analytical approach to sales. 
Despite his superior's clear disapproval of his methods and the threat of termination, Andy was steadfast. All that was a mere bump in the road in his journey through the sales industry. With time and effort came success, and with learned experience came confidence. Of course, none of this could have come about for Andy without one very obvious, very important population, the customer. As I like to tell people, it's a lot of it's the customers teaching me how to sell because they'll, they'll tell you how to sell them. I had one client that was, uh, you know, he's looking to computerize his operations and I knew I was going to win his business, but he wasn't giving it to me, but he had sort of mentored me along the way, sort of giving me clues about what I need to ask and so on. But I still wasn't getting the, the, the order. And, you know, finally he sort of takes me aside. He says, yeah, I'm going to give you the order, but the problem is you want it too much. You're leading with your heart, not your head. He says, so keep your mind in the game. Keep focused on what you can do to serve the client. And yeah, lots of interactions like that with clients that they can perceive that you're open to learning. Yeah, they'll, they'll teach you how to sell. Andy, referring to his early sales career, said that clients will teach you how to sell. What a remarkably powerful discovery this is. To grasp what the most valuable insight can be found by pulling directly from the minds of those you are engaging with. We are intimately familiar with the feeling of wanting something so desperately that it interferes with our focus, with our direction. And this is precisely what Andy sought to conquer. He pursued control over his mind while remaining open to learning, adapting to the scene that metamorphosized constantly around him. As Andy pitched products to his clients, he learned that it was not enough to simply have the best product. The product had to be alluring. It had to be novel. And so it was novelty he sought, which opened up the corridor to his early days with a global power that now rules 21st century tech. One of my sales reps on operated to close a pretty big deal. At that time, it was about $62,000. I called the CEO just to confirm that we're on track and to introduce myself and see if there are any other questions outstanding. No, we're good. Sales guy's done a great job. We're set. So fine, we'll look forward to seeing you tomorrow. We'll go down the next day and he says, yeah, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to do this deal. And I was like, well, <laughs> I talked to you yesterday. What changed? He said, well, you know, last night I went to a computer store and he turned around and credenza and pointed to this Apple II. Look what the computer wizards at Apple have come up with now. Introducing the Apple IIc. Now comes the real magic. You can take it home for under $1,300. But I understood the allure of some, what's the risk? Try this rather than that big expensive piece of equipment. And then the second thought was, oh yeah. This is not going to be the last time. This is just the first time this is happening. This is, this is going to be coming up time and time again. So my first thought was, geez, I need to go check out that business. So I picked up the phone and said, hey, are there any openings at, at Apple? And as it turned out, there were. I was, in many respects, sort of the, the first software evangelist at Apple because my job primarily was to go get software developers to develop applications for small businesses on the Apple II and Apple III products. What were some of the conversations maybe you had with uh, the main man, Steve Jobs? As the Mac was being 
developed, we would run sneak previews for large enterprises about the Mac, of which there was like one in existence at the time. And so it was one memorable meeting where we had the vice president of, of IT for Standard Oil of Indiana, uh, Amico. They were all dressed in three-piece suits, and this guy was very reserved. He obviously was hugely skeptical about personal computers in general, let alone about Apple. And he had made it clear to us on numerous occasions that his annual budget for acquisition of IT equipment was a multiple of Apple's annual revenues. Basically trying to tell us, like, you know, I buy from IBM. You guys are pipsqueaks. You're going to go away. Someone comes in from the Mac group. They bring in, at that time, was perhaps the only Mac in existence in the world, run through a demonstration of just sort of the basic applications. And the guy, you know, looks at it and hmm, doesn't seem very impressed by it. But Jobs was supposed to be at the meeting, and he hadn't come yet. And so he shows up late, as he normally did. And he was dressed in a blue wife-beater T-shirt, you know, strap sleeves, or, you know, straps, and really short cut-off jean shorts that were frayed around the edges. Yeah, we introduced those, you know, Steve Jobs. I think he had already probably been on the cover of Time Magazine or whatever at that point. And this guy sort of looks at him, and Steve's, this a quote, Steve's first words out of his mouth were, so, what'd you think of our shit? And this guy just shut down completely. Um, he was so old school. As he just me, and that was that was basically it. This was back in the day before, yeah, sort of the people accepted the eccentricities of people in Silicon Valley as in the business world, and and this guy just wasn't having any of it. <laughs> And so as your your time progressed Apple, did you want to stay? Were you trying to leave? Like what, what were your thoughts? No, I wasn't trying to leave. It was there was a lot of turmoil because this is when they brought in their first outside CEO, John Scully from Pepsi. But yeah, I was enjoying my time there. But then I got a call from a friend who's had joined a startup that was making the first battery powered notebook computer. And they were looking for someone to build their retail channel, retail distribution channel. I said, oh, okay, sure. Let me look at it. Andy's stint as the first software evangelist at Apple gave him insight into a new world of tech marketing. Andy, among a handful of other marketing employees, vied for attention from the higher ups in hopes of garnering recognition and further opportunity. In some ways, Andy would have to rely on his own aptitude for communication to carry him forward. But his willingness to learn and evolve as a marketer are what encapsulate the drive that propelled him towards success. Marketing for startups meant working on the front lines to bring products that were once imaginative innovations into a space of tangible necessity and to create demand for the supply. These were the early glory days of tech. Each new tech startup had the potential to be an undiscovered goldmine, and Andy knew that in order to make it big, you had to dig deep into uncharted territory. Many of us had joined to purchase founder stock in the company, and, and they actually were, as a show of confidence, they were offering to buy the founder stock back. And I thought, oh, well, this thing's going to tank. I'm going to get my money out. So I got my money out and left, and they did tank about two months later. It seems like Silicon Valley just was so incredibly turbulent at that time and you were caught up in that turbulence 
was it exhausting to just keep like bouncing from from company to company as they were rising and falling and like the trajectory wasn't clear? We were the first generation where it sort of became acceptable or let's say not a black mark against you if you're only at a place for a year or two years or so on. I mean, prior to that, yeah, if you were seen as a job hopper, that was death trying to get a good opportunity. But yeah, in the startup world, it was like, oh, no, you tried, it didn't work. And you went to the next one. Yeah, I just sort of jumped and sort of followed my, my instinct on that. The chaos of Silicon Valley slowly developed into a community, a culture, and a sense of risk-taking solidarity. The uncertainty of the time was all too real for Andy. Who knew if his next leap would leave him destitute? But for him, it was a risk worth taking. Regardless of instability, Andy knew that he needed to take the path forward into the unknown, a boat moving steadily into the fog, confident that land was somewhere on the horizon. In time, this new world that he was exploring became familiar. Over and over, trust and credibility proved crucial to the relationships he needed to foster and the companies he represented. We'll be right back after this break. So I've been drinking a lot of coffee lately, and I recently heard about this one coffee called Kopi Luwak. And it's pretty weird because, uh, well, you know what? I'll just let Jack Nicholson take it away. Kopi Luwak is the world's most expensive coffee. And it's expensive, well, because of a very unique process that has to do with a tree cat that eats, eats the, the beans, beans, digest them, and then defecate. Then people collect the stools and process them into coffee. So basically, it's cat poo coffee. And that got me a little worried. Like, have I inadvertently had this before? So I called up my local Starbucks and asked, is there poop in my coffee? Hi there, this is Starbucks. I'm Pico and Lincoln. Antonio speaking. I was reading online and I heard about this coffee called Kopi Luwak. And I'm, I'm worried if there's poop in, in the Starbucks coffee. Uh, no, there is not. That's a special type of coffee, and we do not sell, nor do we use that type of coffee. How do you know there's no poop in there? I, well, I, um, I can't 100% assure you that our coffee is poop-free. Wait, so, there's, so you're not sure? I cannot guarantee you 100%. Man, I wish determining if there was poop in your coffee was as simple as sharing an episode of Finding Founders with your friends. But unfortunately, I do not have control over the complete supply line, so I can't guarantee you 100% that there is no fecal matter in the coffee. Yeah, I guess poop coffee surveillance is harder than screenshotting finding founders and posting it to the social media for choice or just texting it to a friend. Unfortunately, it's not. Well, if you ever feel like you need to calm down or want to listen to some interesting, inspirational stories, you should check out Finding Founders. Okay, will do. Thank you for the advice. Thanks. So just remember, whether or not there's poop in your coffee, you should check out Finding Founders and make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to the podcast. Yeah, I got recruited by my next-door neighbor who had started this company called Viasat. They were a very small defense contractor, about maybe $5 million a year in revenue. And my charter was that I could, <laughs> I could sell anything I wanted to anybody I wanted as long as they were willing to pay both for all of our R&D as well as a certain number of uh, production units. 
What does what does that mean? I, I, I'm a little confused when you say anything you want. Well, we had no. We just had a range of technologies. We didn't have a product, and so it's just looking at those technologies and saying, hmm. So in the communication space, who might be able to use some of these technologies? I developed an opportunity with, at the time, one of the world's largest communications companies, and they literally had 300 engineers in that division that were developing products of the type that we were proposing that they should buy from us. That they not only should buy from us, they should pay us to develop for them. And I just remember going down. So it was meant to be sort of a final meeting with our CEO, our founder CEO, with their CEO of this big division, and and. My CEO walking out of the meeting said, "There's no way they're going to buy from us." I said, "I said why?" I said, "Of course they're going to buy from us." He said, "No, no." He says, "They're paying 300 plus engineers every two weeks to develop these types of products. Why are they going to buy from us?" I said, "Because they trust us. They trust that we will develop it and deliver it on time, which clearly their internal people haven't." And yeah, I mean, we did win the deal, and. Yeah, starts with starts with just being humans, right? And then, then developing the credibility and trust that the company enables the other company to say, "Yeah, this is the least risky approach that we can take." At this point in Andy's career, it became strikingly evident that trust and credibility were some of the most crucial aspects of client relationships. Developing this trust, as well as having the capacity to maintain this trust, was what success in the field demanded. But Andy's dedication to his work and his clients was beginning to pull parts of his world into completely different directions. Regardless of the success he found abroad, Andy had a family at home, one that he loved dearly. He deeply understood the consequences of a father who could rarely be present. But things seemed beyond his control. I was traveling extensively, hundreds of thousands of miles a year, mostly overseas, and I uh, missed my daughter's birthday. Can we talk about that? Like, where were you? Well, I missed her 10th birthday. I was, I was, I think I was in Australia. And I, I knew that was going to happen. And when you say you knew that was going to happen, what, like, why? Well, I, the, once the trip was scheduled, I, was, I couldn't avoid it. And it was, I didn't like the feeling of not having the control over that. I always thought that I'd sort of had the right work-life balance, right? Even though I was traveling a lot, I still tried to be present for what was going on with the kids. I just don't want to be that person. And I knew lots of people that were that person that, you know, missed events and kids' events and kids' birthdays and so on. I just... <laughs> well, for me, it was it was someone that had the wrong priorities and you know you learn that as, as you get older you get kids and so on is, is life is short so what are the things you're going to prioritize and a lot of people don't consciously say yeah I'm going to take action to change that and so another thing that happened at the same time or shortly thereafter was I was part of a team at Viaset that was acquiring a number of companies from a, a company at the time called Scientific Atlanta. It was a big deal for Viasat because it's a big, big boost for the company in terms of revenues and capabilities and so on. But they were based in Atlanta, so the path was pretty well 
illuminated that if we did this deal, that I was going to have to go to Atlanta. And I'd made it very clear to my bosses at, at Viasat that this is a wonderful deal for the company, but I'm not going to Atlanta. Hmm. And so when we, we got close to you know, closing that deal and, and putting it together, I thought, okay, now's a good time for a change. And so, yeah, we get to beginning part of 2000. I said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to leave. I'm going to start my own, start my own thing. With a less overbearing workload, Andy was able to channel his time into other pursuits and be present for the momentous occasions of his children's lives that parents hold most dear. He wanted to regain some sense of control regarding this part of his life and to not father his kids from a distance. So after decades of exploring all corners of the globe, Andy was prepared to take a step back. He describes this life shift as a positive one, but other unexpected life changes were beginning to take shape. Well, I reinvented myself throughout my career. I mean, I was selling computers to small businesses. The next thing I was working for a tech company, making the first of its kind laptop computer. And that's sort of the thing. As I got into jobs, I did not have a lot of experience or even necessarily the best track record for it, but devoted myself to learning how to do it and do a good job. So I I see that theme of reinvention throughout my entire career. But yeah, in 2010, really, was the big moment because my first marriage had ended and I reconnected with uh, my high school girlfriend from Tokyo. So her job is in New York and my job I could be doing from anywhere. So I packed up and moved from San Diego to New York. And yeah, I had to say, okay, what am I going to do now? And it was at that point that I decided, well, I could do the consulting thing, but... I always wanted to write a book. Let's write a book. Well, I had I had ideas about that had to do with my my philosophy of what I thought helped me be successful selling that I thought would be applicable to other people. What was your expectation for how that book would be received and what happened? None. No no anticipation. Hmm. Like a lot of people, when you're a consultant, you write a book thinking, this is my calling card, right? I can point potential clients to this, hey, I've written this book, right? That's physical, you can touch it. But it developed a following, at least initially among other sales authors and, and sales thought leaders and so on who, who really liked it. Was there like a moment when you realized, oh, this has reached like way more people than I thought it would? Yeah, you start getting people connecting with you on LinkedIn and saying they've read your book. And yeah, this one guy who was VP of us, tech startup in Boston who said, yeah, I run my sales team based on this book. And I'm like, really? <laughs> Are you sure you want to do that? But things like that, that was just like, oh, wow. And it's still to this day, when you hear stuff like that, it's it's gratifying and awe-inspiring that, that people think that anything I have to say is, is that valuable to them. And sort of encouraged me to think about, well, well maybe instead of just jumping back into being a consultant, maybe there's this option of maybe public speaking or other sort of thought leadership type uh, avenues at that time. So yeah, it really sort of set me off on a, a different path and yeah, started doing public speaking and then working on my second book. You describe yourself as an introvert. Mm. So, so what was that first public speaking engagement like were you like very attracted to it or was there some fear or like hesitance in, in pursuing that yeah all of the above 
And as people know me, will say I've never been shy about expressing my opinions about anything. But the trepidation comes from is, is just like when you write a book for the first time is, yeah, people are going to think I'm stupid, right? People <laughs> disagree. And I used to joke about with my wife when I did my early public speaking engagements, she'd say, well, how'd it go? And I'd say, well, you know, no one stood up and called me a fucking idiot. So I guess I went okay. And so there's always that sort of imposter syndrome thing that you have to deal with that, that perhaps people think you're off track or you're just flat out wrong, but you get beyond that. And especially if you want to put your opinion out there, if you want to influence other people, just can't really have that much sensitivity to that. So that, that got through that pretty quickly. But it, yeah, publishing the first book and having people read it was, was pretty daunting. What Andy said feels true. When you put your opinions out in the public realm, you can't think too much about what others think of you. His confidence in himself and his ability to harden his skin were what I think enabled him to excel in expressing his thoughts on a large scale. The knack he showed for sharing his experiences was already remarkable, and more was still to come. As I was thinking of ways to, how could I continue to reach a broader number of people, and I'd gone to a conference and heard a very prominent podcaster, a guy named John Lee Dumas, uh, had a, has a podcast called Entrepreneur on Fire, very successful. Heard him speak, and I thought, well, okay, that could be really interesting. That could be the next thing for me to try. Actually, I was fortunate my son was sort of uh, available between his own work to help me. And so we yeah, put together a plan to start a podcast and uh, worked through the summer. We started recording, I think we started recording interviews within 30 days of having the idea and launched in, gosh, 5th of October, something like that on 2015. Hi friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Yeah, it's that's that we've been doing. We got 840 episodes. Uh, we 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 believe it's the best podcast there is on sales in terms of the depth of conversations and and so on. But it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, I've it's very as I say, it's a very selfish thing because I devote my time and I get to talk to all these smart people that I continue to learn from. Things I wouldn't have learned had the opportunity to learn otherwise if not doing the podcast. And how has it grown since you first started? It's grown a lot. I mean, it's, it's um, you know, we've got a good-sized audience. But probably the best measure is, you know, from the time, I think when I started the podcast, I don't know, maybe had 100 followers on LinkedIn. I mean, virtually, I had virtually no presence, no following. Mm-hmm. And now we've got 178,000, 177,000 followers, something like that. And, and that all came as a result of, of the podcast. But maybe after I've been doing the podcast like 90 days or something, this gentleman said, yeah, Andy, one, one thing you need to keep in mind is that you need to put more of yourself into the show. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, he says, think about it like this is, is, yeah, Jimmy Kimmel interviews guests every night. Do they turn in to see the guests or do they tune in to see Jimmy? And I said, no, yeah, they tune in to see Jimmy goes right. So, you know, your podcast, you are the star. Oh, the podcast, not the guests. And so even though we're doing an interview format, it was really, I think, a turning point for me to say, okay, yeah, I'm just not there to gather their their opinions. I'm going to feel free to <laughs> insert my opinion 
and that's been one of the hallmarks of the show. It's one of the reasons that, you know, sometimes people will post on social media after they've been on my show. Hey, I survived Andy Paul. Um, <laughs> because yeah, we, yeah, I'm not afraid to challenge people, not afraid to tell people they're wrong, not afraid to take a contrary view on things. I think I'm fortunate to be in position with tons of experience and a broad range of experience selling you know, everything from women's shoes to satellite systems costing over hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's like, yes, there's very little I haven't seen or experienced or learned about. I usually like to fully absorb and contemplate what the other person has said when I interview them. But I totally see why Andy's approach was so effective in giving his podcast a unique voice and personality. What better way is there to analyze someone's thought than by challenging them? By breaking ideas apart to understand why they work or don't work. This approach, to question everything, seems in conflict with his life motto of acceptance. But I think questioning ideas does not preclude accepting the present. And it's this philosophy that has allowed Andy to achieve so much, not just with his podcast, but in his career and his life as a whole. My podcast was acquired earlier this year by a software company based in Sherman Oaks called Ring DNA. And that was exciting. That was certainly unanticipated, unexpected. Not many people are fortunate enough to be able to have their podcasts acquired. So we are, we, and I talk about my son, who's a business partner in this, we are producing three episodes a week. We're doing a bunch of special podcast series. Uh, yeah, staying very engaged. And yeah, the thing I'm trying to get finished up is I'm, at the same time, I'm trying to finish my third book and very excited about that. Mm. And uh, hopefully get it done in time that we can get it um, out in the hands of readers by September, October next year. What advice would you have given yourself? Maybe the, the college student with maybe not much direction at Stanford or even the kid coming back from Japan. Like It's so tempting to change jobs too quickly before you learn something. And I think this is, this is a big lesson is, is have patience, right? Make sure that before you jump at that next opportunity, have you actually learned something that's increased your value to that next employer? Patience, I guess, is what I'd, I'd counsel. And that's yeah, something you just have to work at. And I also counsel people to say, look, in your career, if you have to bias yourself in one way or another in terms of what's your highest priority. For me, it's always been about learning. What am I going to learn? So when I was in the opportunity, in the market and had opportunities to, to choose jobs is, okay, what more than the money is, what am I going to learn here? Right? Is it a new industry, a new technology, uh, a new method of selling? What What is it? And that was the driver. Yeah, because I felt confident that, yeah, I could go in and not, sure, make the money. Yeah, we'll be successful. But it has to be something that, that really excited me. And the excitement really is driven from learning something new. When we typically think of someone who is incredibly successful, we might think of someone who is extremely ambitious or voraciously pouncing on every opportunity that comes across. But Andy shows us that achieving success can also just be a matter of patience. The opportunity you should pounce on isn't any one job or position, but rather it's the opportunity to soak in knowledge and experience. 
Learning often comes through depth in the short term and breadth in the long term. Once you fully grasp one concept, you can move on to the next. That's how Andy, who was once a wide-eyed but rather aimless teenager, became the seasoned soul who others turned to for perspective. In an age when change is happening at an unprecedented rate, patience is more important than ever. As long as you maintain a willingness to learn, you will be a dynamic person. And that's a person who holds tremendous value in a world in which the one true constant is change. So stay curious, have patience, and continue to challenge yourself to learn and to grow as you brave the mysteries that life holds in store for all of us. See you next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Joseph Cho, Matt Fernandez, Demir Gold, Spencer Khan, Sophia Donner, Shannon O'Halloran, Jess DeSena, Sebastian Gazada, Samuel Stenica, and Maura Lynch. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Avnish Sengupta, Prerika Chavla, Mitchell Lynn, Gemma Brandwolf, Lise Caldwell, Andrew Kekia, Jessica Gung, Zachary Loudermilk Batia, Kylie McCreary, Lauren Pomeranz, and Sharon Chen. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lynn with support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Lett, Alice Yao, Ankita Numbiar, Jamil Swayce, Sarah Hobson, Gary Zhang, and Melody Sopani. Our design and social media team lead is Annie Liu with support from Phoebe Sajor, Tiffany Day, Rick Liu, Ayla Erickson, Shruti Ramanand, Ling Mu Hu, James Barton, Carla Ruvalcava, and Alana Donnelly. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence with support from Melanie Mack and Nina Maravich. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.